Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. What we're going to look at today is perhaps one of the most quoted verses in which Jesus describes himself. It's, again, something that you're going to be very familiar with. It's a passage, in fact, that's frequently read at funerals, as Jesus' words here about himself are profoundly comforting in facing the death of a loved one. But beyond its use, its regular use during gravesite services, Jesus' self-description here is often framed as something of an ultimatum. An ultimatum for people to get with the program and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior in order to be saved. But I hope that today, through our conversation, we'll discover that in fact what Jesus is trying to communicate in the upper room with his first disciples is not an ultimatum or a warning at all. It is an extension to us of a promise. And it's a promise that's given to us not only about life after death, it is a promise offered to us that will change our lives here and now. If you have it open, follow along with me as we read from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It reads, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time, I'd like to introduce and invite up my conversation partner. He is one of our elders. He's actually serving as the treasurer in his current term as elder. He's been a part of this community for a long time. You'll often see him as one of our ushers, an amazing man of, of hospitality, generosity, and compassion. Will you please welcome John Timmons as he comes to join me today? Morning. Morning, John. Good to oh, this, see you. This chair looks comfy. Don't oh, get too comfortable. That's nice. Don't get too comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so again, just to remind everybody, we do this, we look at each, I look at the passage with the person that's up here, really centered around three questions. There's the how, what question, which is what would, what would help you as you read this passage, as you listen to it, what would help you to understand it better? And we're going to start there. But then we move from that to a so what question, meaning in light of what we've talked about, what we've discovered together, What connections are you making? What new insights is the Lord giving you, the Spirit giving you through this passage? And we'll finish by talking about what I call the now what question, meaning how do we apply and exercise the insight that we're given here to follow Jesus better, to follow Jesus more closely. So when John and I got together to talk about this passage, his question, his how what, from listening and reading this passage and praying over it was, uh, I actually love just the raw honesty of this question, which is, What's, the, what's, the, what's wrong with the disciples? Like, why are the disciples so confused about what Jesus says here? And so I'm going to recap what John and I talked about. And that's going to lead into that second question. So, I, again, I love the, the simple honesty of that of, you know, Jesus has kind of laid this out before. Why are the disciples so confused about what Jesus says to them? 
And what I said to John, what we talked about is, you know, it's really easy for us to understand these words, what Jesus is saying here, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Hindsight gives us a better perspective as to what Jesus meant, what he was saying here. But we have to really kind of put ourselves in the moment. When Jesus first spoke these words, he offered them to the disciples in the midst of great fear and uncertainty. If you don't remember what came before these words, what's already been happening in the upper room, Jesus has washed their feet, he's instituted communion for the first time, but he also, in the midst of all of that, has shared that he was going to be betrayed, handed over to suffer and die by someone sitting at that very table. And then in the midst of all the confusion and the protests that follow, not me, Lord, Jesus plainly and specifically adds that Peter, too, will deny him three times. So what Jesus has just done is he's just said that two of the twelve are going to turn their backs on Jesus. So you have to imagine beyond the two, the other ten are wondering how they are going to fare on the road ahead. Will they go the distance with Jesus? Will they make it to the end, or will they abandon him along the way, too? And it's an answer to these questions, and other countless questions probably, that disciples have running around in their heads and weighing upon their souls, that Jesus, with the words we just heard, doesn't put forth an ultimatum, but actually extends a promise. And it starts, do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And what John and I talked about is that in one sense, in the immediate sense, Jesus is trying to ready his followers yet again for what was ahead for him his suffering and death on the cross. Knowing that his disciples would need hope in the days that followed, Jesus is reassuring them that in what is about to happen, what's about to take place, in what he's about to do, not just for them, but for all of us, in what Jesus is about to do, our place with Jesus will become immovable and everlasting. That through the offering of his life on the cross and his victorious resurrection over sin, death, and evil, nothing can Nothing ever will separate us from the love of God. But as you, you know, and as John pointed out, the disciples do not understand what he's saying. They are completely disoriented. They don't have a clue which way Jesus is going. And what I really teased out with John that we really focused on was you notice the disconnect is they mistake a metaphorical reference that Jesus makes about his father's house to a place, to a geographical space. And Thomas speaks for them all, right? When he hears Jesus' promise of a place on a literal level and asks, where are you going, Jesus? And in response, Jesus puts it right out there, declaring, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you catch, and John and I talked about this, that when Thomas asks for a location, Jesus doesn't give him a map. The directions that Jesus spells out point Thomas and the rest of the disciples not to a place, not to a place to go, but he points them rather to a relationship, a relationship they already find themselves in. So the big insight for me in this passage is the Father's house is not a building made with human hands. We've already experienced that with the tension over the temple, right? Everything, everybody thinks the temple's the, the big deal, and Jesus says, that's nothing. This, is, this isn't where God's housed anymore. I'll tear that down and rebuild it in three days. The Father's house that Jesus is talking about here is not something made with human hands. The Father's house is not some other world beyond death, some place out there. The Father's house isn't Jesus' building project, some great mansion in the sky in preparation for receiving the dearly departed. Biblically, especially in the Gospels, the idea of a dwelling place, a dwelling place with God isn't about a place at all. It's about the relationship. 
It's about being in the intimate presence of God. And later on in this passage, in this conversation in the upper room, Jesus is going to talk about dwelling, and he's going to use a key word that conveys this idea that it's not about a place, it's about a relationship. And the key verb he's going to use is abide. The insight here is that the Father's house, our dwelling place, our home, is Jesus. So what Jesus is telling Thomas is that he already knows the way. Precisely because Thomas knows Jesus, he can't get lost. Now, what I, we, we went, John and I, and we were wont to do this, went beyond the passage. And so very quickly, let me go beyond what we read, because Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, if you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Again, this is a promise. But now it's not Thomas. It's a promise that Philip doesn't understand. The disciples have already seen the father? When was that? Where? Isn't that a way out in the future kind of thing? And Philip is like all geeked up to see the Father, and he says, just show us the Father, Jesus, and we're good to go. Philip thinks he's asking, again, a concrete, simple question. But just as he did with Thomas, Jesus says to Philip, Thomas, don't you get it? To see the Father, look in front of your face. Grammar matters in verse 7 here. Because when Jesus says, if you know me, the Greek, ver- Greek tense here is not conditional. Jesus is actually making a statement of fact. Jesus is using in, in uh, the Greek language an expression that declares an already existing state of affairs, which again makes the, state, the force of this statement promissory. Jesus is basically saying, if you know me and you do know me, you will know the Father. And in case we have any doubt, Jesus goes, again, goes on to spell it out again and says, and from now on, You actually do know him and have already seen him. Jesus, by the way, in this moment is echoing an affirmation from the very beginning of John's gospel, the prologue, do you remember it, where John writes these words, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, literally in the bosom of the Father, who has made him known. So the summation, which is going to lead to, I'm curious how, John's been, how John has been chewing on this, what, in, what God's given him in this. The summation is that if we want to know who God is, we need to look no further than Jesus. The Father has already come, is already present in the life and ministry of Christ. All of the words Jesus has spoken, all of the works he has done come from God to show us who God is, the nature of God, the way, the truth, and the life of God's deep, sacrificial unconditional and life-giving abiding love. Again, these are not these are not words of condition. These are words of comfort for the disciples. Jesus's words here are less meant to keep people out as they are to assure his followers that they're in. They're really in. That there is nothing uncertain for their present or their future because of their relationship with Jesus. And Jesus wants them, wants us to be secure in that. The Father's house, our dwelling place, is God and the Spirit, Christ not only with us, but also in us, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that can only be extended to us after the love offering of Jesus' life on the cross and his victory through the resurrection. Jesus is our home, our abiding place, where we can always find peace, where we can always discover joy, where we can always experience forgiveness, where we can always draw from the limitless wells of grace, hope, and love. And that's where John and I landed, and it was an exciting conversation, and I'm really excited to hear as you chewed on that. So the question is, what, can, what, what does that open up for you, this idea of Jesus is our home? Well, you know, as, 
what y'all don't know is the conversation Chris and I had had. Uh, I was super excited that uh, God had placed this particular verse on Chris's heart. Uh, it's such a rich piece of, of the gospel. There's so much happening here, and there's so much that, that Jesus and God is communicating through us um, through just these very short six verses. Uh, if you go back, I, I think, earlier in, in the gospel, uh, so many things have transpired uh, where Jesus has revealed who he is. Uh, through his works, his miracles, uh, so much has happened. And I think one of the things that uh, really stood out to me, and, and we discussed this, Chris, was that the disciples, after you know, being so close to Jesus and his ministry, witnessing you know, who he is he, as he reveals himself, they're still in moments of uncertainty. They're still in moments of doubt. And I, I think I made reference to going back to the Israelites leaving, you know, Egypt, and, and how many times did God come back and reinforce his presence, his love, his promise, uh, yet to a doubting group of people over and over again, and uh, probably not untrue to most of us as human beings, right? We, we tend to, you know, when things aren't going great, we tend to doubt and say, God, where are you? Uh, but I think in this, in this passage with the real... The real thing that stood out to me initially, my, my question, so to speak, was, you know, why, why is it that the disciples continue to come back to that space after seeing everything they did? I mean, basically, Jesus doing pretty much everything up to that point except the resurrection, saying, this is, this is who I am. This is, you've seen me, and yet you're still asking these questions. And I thought that was very uh, insightful, I think, to our own humanity to some degree. Say more about that. So... Um, you want me to keep talking. I like that. That's, you know, I've known Chris for a long time, and that has never happened in all the years. Don't make me regret this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, uh, I think within, within, the, um, within the constraints of our own humanity, we tend to want to put God in a box uh, because that way we can understand who God is. We want to put Jesus in a box, and Jesus then becomes our our go-to place where, you know, when things are going great, we might break them out and say, cool, thanks, I'm blessed. Uh, when things are going bad, we might break them out and say, okay, get me out of this real quick. But we quickly put them back in that box, right, into our frame of, of our humanity um, until we need them again. And then when, as soon as we're, we've done that and we've displaced him for the moment to kind of go back and live into our own will, um, we begin to doubt you know, as soon as things go south or don't go the way that we want them to go, we immediately turn around and begin to question and doubt our, our faith in Jesus. Where are you? And he's never left. We've kind of turned the other way. So what I'm, what I'm hearing... And is, I know this is a little different than what we had discussed no, in our no, conversation, so but I've been further chewing on our... No, on and our that's piece, exactly yeah. what we were hoping for. I mean, not at all. This is not scripted. This is, this is exactly what it's supposed to be, how it's coming out organically. What I hear you saying in that that I think, is, I think is really insightful is we've seen this throughout the Gospels, but now we see it even with the disciples, and there's some encouragement in that for all of us, is that I hear you saying we oftentimes can get focused on the results rather than on the relationship. A hundred percent. Well, and another way to say that is I think we often look at the gift of God as being what God can do for us. And what we miss, and what I really think Jesus is trying to bring home here, is the gift is Jesus. What Jesus is the gift. Jesus is what God does for us. And everything else is an extension of pointing back to who Christ is, pointing back to 
the character of God, but the disciples, like I said, are, are looking for a geographical place. We're always looking for, like, where is this going to go? Where is this going to lead? We're looking for the results, and actually the results point us back to the relationship if we're willing to see it, yeah. the God who's always there. And, and you've said this, Chris, in so many of your sermons, uh, and, and it really resonates with me, is, is that, you know, Jesus wants nothing more than a deep and meaningful relationship with each of us personally, 100%. And, and this particular passage really kind of calls that out because if you, if you listen to the, 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 ones, the one part where he says, I'm, uh, my father's house has many rooms uh, and uh, I'm preparing those rooms for you. We, you know, metaphorically, right, we immediately go to a, a, the construction of a, of a building, right? Uh, Jesus is not at all referring to a building. He's, and we talked about the word abide, quite, by the way, and, and Chris is a far smarter man than I could ever hope to be, so I had to go back and look up abide in, in the dictionary. Thank goodness for Google. Um, and, uh, but uh, what, what Jesus is saying is, is live in me. Live in, I, I am your home. I, I'm here. And when he's saying I'm going to prepare a destination, he's making reference to the upcoming resurrection. I'm, I'm going to fulfill the promises of Scripture, and I'm preparing the way for you. You don't need to go anywhere, look any further, or be any place other than in me. And, and I found, the more I dwelled and prayed on that, I found that to be an incredible source of comfort because I think... And this is the analogy that comes to my mind. You know, we kind of, you know, we, we look forward to Christmas every year. It's something that's going to happen at some point, right? And, it, and, and we get to it. We don't have to wait for something in the future to have what, what God, what Jesus is promising us. He's promising, everything he's promising us, promising us you know, on, uh, <clears throat> on earth as it is in heaven is... Is, is full and deep, meaningful relationship with him right here, right now, if we follow him the way that he's guided us to follow him. Mm. Yeah, when we talked, I, I, kept, I always I picture in this, especially with, with uh, Philip, who asks the second question, Jesus almost taking one of the disciples by the face and saying, look at me. <laughs> you're, you're looking all over. It's, I'm right here. I'm right here. This, this, I am the way. I am the truth. You're looking beyond me. And, you're, and this is it. I'm it. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is going to show you that I'm it. And what's going to happen next, Pentecost, I'm going to be in, in and with you. Uh, and, and it's this idea, again, of missing the forest for the trees. I think you're really on that. But there's also a tension, though, that we talked about that, that the disciples legitimately face, that we face, is that we want to know. Right? We want to know. We, we want to be, and you could maybe use the word control. Knowledge is power, right? We want to know. But really what Jesus is also teasing out here, which can be scary if we don't hear the, the, the promise, is that really we don't, there's not a lot we can know. We, we, we try to convince ourselves we know more than we actually do. But the truth of the matter is we don't know where the road's going to lead us. We don't know what's going to happen when we go through those doors. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or the next month. We don't know what obstacles or what glories we're going to encounter as we follow Christ. And, and, and to put it not even in negative terms, to put it in more positive terms, we cannot know the limits of the possibilities, not only of what we can experience, but what we can endure and rise up by the grace of God. Later on in this passage, Jesus makes probably one of the more, most provocative statements that makes everybody uncomfortable, right? When Jesus says, and you are going to do even greater things than I have done. And we're all going... <laughs> what? 
But that again is Jesus not pointing to heaven as being a faraway place later as being I am going to be with you here and now, and here and now you are going to experience my power at work in you and through you, and greater things than you've even already experienced are going to take place. The cross and the resurrection are the beginning. When the door to death is kicked open, that's the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning. And I think oftentimes we look at it as the end, and we're just kind of waiting for, is someone going to finally come and pick me up? (laughs) And Jesus frames it differently and says, no, this is the beginning of the best that's yet to come. What, Paul writes it this way, doesn't he? Is it in Corinthians? What, I think it's Corinthians. What God has prepared for those who love him is beyond our imagining. The limits of the possibilities for our lives, for this world, we cannot and we do not know. And that bothers us. But what Jesus is saying here, and again, it can freak us out if we don't listen to the, the promise. What Jesus is saying is that all we can know and that all we need to know is Jesus. And that's why, and we talked about this, learning, studying, abiding, and becoming a part of Jesus' humanity, his life, death, and resurrection, that's the most important thing. That's why Paul will say, I want to know nothing else. It's all garbage. All I want to know is Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And he says, and not that I've arrived, but I just keep pressing on. Paul recognizes what discipleship is. And that's another word for what we're talking about here. When we talk about discipleship, discipleship is realizing your entire life, if you're a follower of Jesus, the most important thing above everything else that we can point to the world throws at us, the most important thing is learning, studying, abiding, and becoming, through the power of the Holy Spirit, part of Christ's humanity, his life, death, and resurrection. It's the most important knowledge to which we have access In the midst of all the other things we don't know that we freak out about, what do we know? And it's the most crucial focus of study and growth in our lives. And when we talked about this, I kind of, and I'm dipping a little bit into the the last question, but that's all right, is for you, what does that look like? When you hear that, what what is it, how does that translate into your daily life, living at home, living at home with Jesus? Well, I think we, we, we talked about this actually quite in depth, and, and it, the, it, it's kind of the application of this. If you, what, I think what Jesus, if, if you go back to the interaction with him and Thomas, uh, you know, essentially what I kind of peel out of this is that really what Jesus is sharing with Thomas is um, you, need to, you, need to, you need to have faith in me. You need to trust me. You need to be in, in relationship with me. You know, your identity should be in me, not in who you are. And, and I had shared with Chris, um, you know, a personal application a few years ago. Um, I had, uh, you know, worked with the same company for a lot of years, and it was acquired, and I was, uh, I was laid off. And um, it was a, a really difficult time in my life. Uh, some of my good friends here who walked with me on that journey know what I'm talking about. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I look back and I praise God and thank him for the journey I was on, as difficult as it was, that he had a f- much larger vision for my life than that moment, right? The point of the story is, is that my identity was 100% wrapped up into my title and position at work. That's who John identified himself with. And that got taken away from John overnight. And that was a really, really bad place to be. That was a deep valley for me. Um, At the same time, 
looking back, God was working through me to help me realize that my identity is not in what I do. It's not in what I have. It's not on what I accomplish. My identity is who I am in Christ Jesus and how he defines me and how I reflect him. That's, that's, that's who I'm called to be in, in this Christian life that I'm, that I'm trying to walk on. Yeah, and, and, I would, and when we talked about this, in the midst of that uncertainty, and, and that's a scary place to be, and, and several of us in this room, I imagine, have been in that space, in, one, in, in that particular aspect or another, it's this sudden push to, you can get fixated on what you don't know. What, how am I going to get the next job? How am I going to, you get fixated in all these things of trying to do it yourself. And it's in that pivotal moment of the only thing you can know is Jesus, who you are in Christ and who Christ is to you. Mm-hmm. And to press into that, trusting that the more you press into recognizing, understanding who you are in Christ and who Christ is to you, that the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. I mean, and Jesus puts this another way. And, if, you know, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added unto you. You worry about all these, but don't, don't worry, worry. Don't worry about that. Be, be secure in knowing who you are in me. And I just, I, I just really, I think that's such an important word, John, because... Because, um, again, I think we can all relate to that. I think we all feel the pressure at times that we have to define ourselves. We have to find our identity, build our identity based on other things. Mm-hmm. You know, how often do we say, I am the job? How often is retirement hard for many of us? Because when we retire, we feel this crisis of identity. I don't know I'm not going to have that problem. <laughs> it's good. How many of us, again, feel a sense of, a, of identity or destiny or where we're going to be based upon how much money we can make? But how much, what we can secure. And all of that is not the most important thing. And, how, and again, think about how our world is wired. And I'm not saying that these pursuits are bad things. I'm saying that they're, they become bad things when they become our primary pursuits. You got to get an education. You got to get experience. You got to get a job. You got to make more money. You got, all these things we have to keep doing. And there's nothing wrong with those things, there's, right? There's nothing yeah, wrong with those that's pursuits. Not, that's not what I'm saying. No, what we're but, saying it, but, right. it's, but it's when those things go away... And you realize those have been your primary. Those have been the things that define who you are. Those are the things that have given you some sense of where you're going to end up. When those things get taken away, it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Because now who are you? Well, because we were idolizing something else. Well, and that's the word, isn't it? Idolizing. And, and this is a hard one. We don't like the word idolizing. But if, Jesus, if what Jesus is saying here is the only thing you can know, the only thing you need to know, the only thing you need to, to fundam- primarily, fundamentally, if, if it, everything else was stripped away, learn, study, abide in, experience, is me, who I am, my way, my truth, my life, that's your way, your truth, your life, that's it. If Jesus is saying that's primary, then anything else that we put before that is an idol. Because we've got it in the wrong order. Mm-hmm. When we have that first, then the other things, our career or our calling, as we talked about last week, our means, what we have to live on and to share, all of those things, it's interesting. They become, they, they, not only do they change in the priority, but they change in how we deal with them, don't we? Well, and not to be Captain Obvious, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the reality is, is that you know, all of those things are taken away in a blink of the eye. You know, we've all just, in one second, we're feeling great. The next second, the older I get, I, the other day, I, I, I bent over the sink to, to grab something, and my back went out for like three days. It's like, what the heck? 
Um, but, but your health, everything can be taken away. The one thing that can never be taken away, it would never be separated from, is the love and the promise of Jesus through God. Period. The end. I'm, you know, I wasn't going to go here because I felt like this is going to be hard for some people to hear, but you're, what you're setting up is one of the tensions I okay, have. I'm going to apologize in advance. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that I was doing this. One of the tensions that I have as a pastor, and again, if, you've, if, you've, if this affects you, we can talk is that this verse gets requested, as I said, all the time at memorial services. In my father's house, there's many, many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. This verse should be used. I'm not saying it shouldn't. But what I often hear people, you hear this as, yep, uh, dad's gone, but he's playing nine holes up in heaven. Yep, he's got a workshop all set up for my dad in heaven, or my mom, or my mom's cooking, or whatever. And I'm not, I, who know, that may be happening, I don't know. But that's not the point of these verses. Right. Because all we're doing is we're transporting an identity and a destiny based upon what we do, what we achieve, into heaven. And that's not it at all. What Jesus is saying here is when, when, the, when, we, when death has come, death is not the last word in someone's life. In Christ, that they are in the presence of God. We can be assured that they've left behind all the other snares and snags and other things. And, it's, it, and, I, and I try in a memorial service to try to reframe it that way, but it's so predominant that like the disciples, we take this literally as, oh, I've got, Jesus has got a really sweet place that all set up for me in heaven, and it's going to have all the stuff that I love to do. And again, I don't know, maybe that's going to happen, but at the same time, I think that when we get to the other side of this life, that's not going to matter. Chris, isn't it, isn't it possibly true too? You know, that's, you know, when we look at it that way, that's again ourselves putting God into a box that we can understand. Well, it's making God about the results. It's put, again, you, back to idolatry, it's creating God in our own image. Mm-hmm. You know, and what do I mean by that is, is if you envision that God's idea of eternity and paradise is what you love to do, are you worshiping God or are you worshiping the God who looks just like you? Maybe God has bigger things in mind than the, the things that we often settle for. And I want to push you, John, on this one because, again, something we also talked about is how do we, in the here and now, talking about later after death, but in the here and now, how do we know we're living at home with Jesus? And one of the things I think we see here, it's alluded to and certainly will come up later, is that just as Jesus is the presence, the embodiment of the way of God, of God's truth, of the life that God created us to live, So as we become the church, the body of Christ, which is what we're called, we are to be the embodiment of God's character, God's promises, God's desires for all creation. What I mean is living at home, being with Jesus, means being like Jesus, thinking and speaking and acting like Christ. If you want to know if Jesus is the primary source of your knowledge, what you want to learn the most about, what you study, what you abide in, then you'll know that that's where you're placing all the, 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 the multitude of your energy, the first fruits, if you will, because Jesus will ooze out of you. It's, it's, uh, it's the Christian ideals, right? It's yeah. what, where do we spend our time, where do we spend our money, and what do we spend most of our lives thinking about, right? It's, Those are it's, often you know, some of the benchmarks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What do you think about that? I mean, what, does that attend? About is what it, I just said? About <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you, is, do you, how do you re- relate to so, that? So, yeah, that, it's funny, as you were saying that, um, I, I'm trying to be, you know, true John here. So John looking in the mirror mm. and, and being reflective, I'm thinking, gosh, if, if I'm the reflection of Christ at home, then I, I probably failed 14 times this morning before I got here. Uh, in, in that, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in, in the things that, that I do, that we do. Um, but I, I think if I'm going to be 
kind of, if, I, if I'm in good reflection on what you're asking, I think living like Christ at home is, is, is more around how do, we, how do we love each other, how do we forgive each other, how do we live into what it is that Jesus taught us in our day-to-day lives? You know, it's, it's, we're, not, we're not and we can't be, and I don't even pretend to be anywhere near. Um, I, don't, I hate to use the word perfect because I'm so far from it that even saying that word would suggest I'm somewhere near achieving that, and that's so not true. But at least in the midst of the missteps, if you will, the, the, the points where my thoughts go to maybe not a Christ-like area, um, I'm quickly snapped back into where I need to be and reoriented and refocused and, and can continue to improve and adjust. I think that's such an important word because you could, you could step away from this and hear this idea that, and, and I think we often do frame it this way in the church, Jesus has done all this for you, now it's time for you to step up and do all this stuff for Jesus. And that's not at all what's right. being said here. The, these disciples, the very first disciples, are going to fo- follow the same trajectory that we do. They've been with Jesus for three years. One's going to deny. One's going to betray. The rest are going to run for cover. And then even after that, they're going to have their, their, their struggles. This isn't about perfection. This isn't some idea that God says, I've done this. Now it's your part. It's God saying, I am, again, back to this, I am going to be with you every step of the way. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. But it's not about progress that we have to manifest on our own. Again, back to this idea of learning, making Jesus the primary thing, that we, thing we want to learn about, study, abide in. It's not about our initiative as much as it is our surrender. Mm-hmm. It's abiding. It's being utterly dependent upon Jesus. And I think that what you said is real. I can say the same. Try, living, making Jesus our home, we're, we, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Isn't that the, what the hymn says? We're prone to wander. We're not, we, we, we are like the prodigal son in the sense that we oftentimes can get away from home. But we're also like the elder son that oftentimes we can think we're living at home, but in fact, we're really not there. And it's not about us as much as it is letting Jesus do what he promises to do in us to continue to work through those things, those places where we fail, where we, are str- where we struggle, but also to work through us in the lives of others. That's the beautiful thing about resurrection, guys. The beautiful thing about resurrection is not just that we know that when we die, death doesn't get the last word in our lives, but the beautiful thing about resurrection that we miss in the here and now is that failure is never final in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That we can fall flat on our face, and we will, but Jesus will pick us back up again. Well, I mean, we can turn away from Jesus, but he will never turn away from us. Exactly. And, and I can't tell you how many times in my life I can speak to the fact that I've seen that over and over and over again. He's always there. Well, and that's where it's so twisted when we turn, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me into an ultimatum that we put out to other people. I'm so glad we, you came back because we were talking about a, a verse that's misused or, or misunderstood yeah. in weddings and, uh, uh, funerals. or funerals, I'm sorry. Uh, but that particular verse, I, I, I read it, and I don't know about any of you, but my mind kind of goes to the, the rainbow hair guy at the stadium or, or somebody on a street corner tells me that I'm going to be you know, visiting the, the barbecue if I don't do something. Um, the <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, hold on, I'm going to resonate on that for a minute. That was funny. Um, <laughs> oh, no. but, uh, but if you read the entirety of the verse and understand what Jesus is saying, it's not an ultimatum. It's not a, it's not a demonishment or a, 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 
derogatory statement. It's not one that's, that's telling us to do something. Jesus is reinforcing what he was saying earlier about what we were discussing in Abide in Me. You know, I am the dwelling. I am your, that, I'm, I'm the place that you were to be, right? And all he's doing is reminding Thomas here that, hey, Thomas, I already told you, I'm, I'm going to prepare this place. This place is me. I am, you, I am where you're, you're going to go and where you belong. Don't forget, Thomas, one more time. I just told you, but I'm going to tell you again. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I, you're, you're looking for a destination. You don't need to. It's me. So I look at this verse, and this really came after our conversation that it was just so abundantly clear to me. Um, that this is really a verse of encouragement. So it's, it's, it's one that just reinforces this, in, this beautiful character and nature of who Christ is, um, not an a ultimatum as it's often turned into. Well, and something that, that stays with me every time I come back to this verse from the standpoint of what it's not, and, and I, I don't know how many of you remember this or recall this, but back I think it was in the late 90s, uh, a boy named Matthew Shepard who was gay, was brutally murdered. And again, members of a church that I shall not name showed up to his funeral of all places, protesting his funeral, and on their placards they had, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this was using these words of Jesus, this self-description that is not an ultimatum but a promise. Jesus isn't drawing a line in the sand for the disciples here. You will not get that from what's happening here. Jesus is taking disciples who are freaking out that they are lost, that they're going to that they're, that they're going to go go south, and saying, again, grabbing their face, "I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've got you, I've got you. You're you're he, you're with me, and you're going to be with me because what I'm going to do is going to take care of that forever. Nothing is going to separate you from me." And I just think it's so important because again, I think we have this tendency to chide or condemn others for not believing, and we often throw that out, you know, as, our, as, our, as again, our ultimatum. But what really struck me is, whose unbelief before God is more suspect? Whose unbelief before God is more damning? Those who don't believe in Jesus or those who profess to believe in Jesus and yet don't follow him? Hmm. Who, don't, who claim his address but don't actually live there? I don't know about you, but I I think from what I see just in the Gospels alone, it's the people who say, we believe, and yet act nothing like they do not reflect the very character of the God they purport to represent. You know, Chris, and I just, what was resonating with me is, and you've taught this to me through the years of your counseling, is we, when we're studying the Word of God, when I'm studying the Word of God, it's so important for me to go backwards and go forward and understand the context, understand the context in which it's, it's written because um, I think a lot of people who want to use God's word in a manner that it's not intended or for their own benefit, they will take it out of context and just hold on to that and then define it by their own terms as opposed to really taking the time to understand, you know, what is the nature of, what is, what is God really telling us What's the true story behind it? And then going even, even like really nerdy deeper is, is, is understanding the, the, the Greek or the contextual meaning of the original language because that really starts to change things into an understanding that you can easily see where people would take that one verse, use it for their own benefit, but be so far off on what God's really trying to say. And I want to affirm that, but I also want to make it even more simple. Um, I just think that sometimes people do this intentionally, but sometimes it's unintentional. 
And, and what you have to recognize as a follower, follower of Jesus, this is why study is important, but this is also where pastors come in and others to come and say, hey, what is this? What is this? But at a bare minimum, don't play the telephone game with Scripture. You know what I mean by the telephone game? Someone throws out a verse and, well, that's what this means. And you go, oh, okay, well, that's what it means. So I just keep using that verse that way. Instead of we have Bibles, opening it up and going, wait a second. Wait, that is not what is happening here. I mean, I think for most of us, without having to study Greek or go to seminary, we could see that just by opening up our Bibles going, this does not seem to jive with the way it's being represented. I want to just end with one final thing, and and you can comment on it, and then we'll close. You know, one of the things we need to talk about is that when Christianity begins, the first followers of Jesus begin to assemble by the Spirit after Pentecost— they don't call themselves the body of Christ. They don't call themselves the church. Do you remember in the book of Acts what they call themselves? The way. The way. That's the way the early church described itself because, again, the early church understood the way is not just a road or a path to follow. It's a practice to be lived. To claim to be a Christian, to be in Christ, is to walk where Jesus walked, to walk as Jesus walked. And that means that the doctrines of our faith, we did the creed of conviction earlier, the doctrines of our faith aren't just a checklist. They're not a litmus test. They're the defining realities we experience, we live and breathe. They transform how we think and we act in this world. And their validity, the validity of what we believe to the world, by the way, the validity of what we profess is not by what we say, but it's by how we live. Grace is not a dogma. Grace is a practice. It's praying together in Jesus' name, but not letting our prayers be confined to when our eyes are closed or when we're on our knees. Grace is a practice when we're worshiping together in Jesus' name, but worship isn't limited to a time or a church building. Grace is a practice when we eat and drink in Jesus' name, when we celebrate the gifts of life in Jesus' name, but it's not restricted or not somehow different just because we're at a communion table. Our journey of faith is not defined by its boundaries. It's defined by its center. And that center is Jesus. And in Christ, the scriptures tell us over and over again, God was reconciling the world. Not a selective few. God was reconciling the world to himself. As Christians, it is our privilege both to carry Christ within our hearts, but it's also our privilege to know that Jesus belongs to no one. And yet Jesus is available to everyone. Final thoughts, John, before we close? I don't know that I can talk about There's no topping. It's, it's not about that. What are you, um, you, you, you going to leave I, with? I just, you know, uh, for, for me, kind of going back and, you know, it's, I constantly work on my relationship with, with Jesus and, and trying to better understand who I am in him. And this this exercise this is just this has been a gift. I'm I'm so grateful that to have this moment to have this opportunity to have walked this kind of week with you, uh, Chris, um, because for me I think it, it just reinforces the journey I'm on in defining my relationship with Jesus and what that means to me in my life and how I'm to live into you know how He has. Uh, built his plan out for me. So I, I think it was, this was just an exercise and there were uh, some aha moments. There were some, some moments that kind of took on a different meaning. Um, but I, I felt a lot of practical application in terms of, you know, really the, the bottom line is, is the focus on, on the relationship 
and that's ultimately, there's, it's, there's not heaven, the house, the home, the rooms are not someplace to look forward to uh, in the future, but living within Christ and his presence and his spirit now is, is uh, what leads into the abundant life that we discussed briefly, you know, Jesus is promising us. I really want to affirm and thank you for saying that, John. And it's an opportunity before I pray to close this out, just to reflect back to all of you why we're doing this. You know, this, isn't, this wasn't just a cute move to try to change how I preach. Uh, although of, I am cute. You, well, yes, okay. you are. I just want to make sure we're clear This on is that. all falling apart. Hold on. <laughs> but part of why I really felt led to do this is not just for a diff- it's something different that would engage people differently, but I wanted to model before all of us as a community that this is what we're called to do. You may not be sitting in this chair, but you could be. You could spend the week with me, and it doesn't have to be me. It could be someone else next to you. You know, oftentimes people will say, and, and this is coming out of years here preaching sermons of, well, you know, I just don't hear God the way that you hear God. I just don't experience Jesus the way that you experience Jesus. I just, you know, the insights, where do you get that from? Where are you hearing that from? And it's not because I, went, because I went to seminary that there's a foundation that's there, yes. But it comes from because, I'm in, because by the nature of what I'm called to do, I'm immersed in this and I'm talking to others about it. Mm-hmm. When you do this, and it doesn't mean you have to be up here, but when you do this, when you find another person and say, let's open up God's word and let's talk and pray and come back and talk and, about this together, you know what you're going to discover? Is suddenly you're going to see God, God's fingerprints all over the place. You're going to hear the voice of Jesus. You're going to see Jesus going before you, and you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, is that all it took for Jesus to show up? No. Jesus was always there. Jesus was always speaking. Jesus is always working and moving. You're seeing Jesus. You're hearing Christ. You're seeing the fingerprints of God, experiencing it, because you're prioritizing learning and studying and talking and abiding and wrestling with who he is. This is a blessing, but my hope is, and I know this about John because that's part of why God led me to John to come up, is that John's not going to go, well, one and done. That was a great week. John does this whether it's a conversation with me or not. And my encouragement to you is when you, as we continue through this series, is to see yourself up here and ask, what would your question be? What would you say in response? And maybe you can do that in the, just in, the, in your own mind, but maybe you might find someone else and go, huh, if you had been up there, what would you have said? I, what is what I would have said? These are the questions I would have had. Or, you know, this is kind of what my insights are. And when you do, just do that, step back and be prepared to realize and see how God is working and moving in your life in ways that you didn't understand, that you didn't see. Because that's the God we worship. That's the Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you have said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Don't let us stray from you. Don't let us distrust your truth to rest in anything other than your life. Because you have given us life, and you have given us a wonderful world, and permeated it through and through with your grace and your love. And you have promised, and you give us your spirit to be with us as we journey through this life. Yet we confess Many times that we can't see you, we can't take you in, we can't comprehend how you are at work in our lives, especially in those moments of pain and disappointment and sorrow. Lord, we confess that sometimes we're focused on the results rather than just on the relationship, the relationship that you want, that you give to us. 
Teach us by your Holy Spirit what to believe, what to do, where to take our rest. Give us your Spirit to lift our sights beyond the narrowness of where we tend to look and focus, but to widen our horizons to possibilities that, can, that we couldn't even imagine. Teach us to pray with such openness to your Spirit that you make yourself plain to us. Bring us into your presence so that we will just surrender absolutely surrender, utterly be dependent upon your life-changing love, and we will move as you lead. And we will speak, and we will think, and we will act as you direct. Meet us where we are, O oh God, but don't leave us there. Don't leave us there. Take us with you wherever you go. This we ask in your name. You, our Lord and Savior, our light and salvation, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the bright glory of the Trinity, now and forever and ever, and all God's people say, Amen. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.